Book Eleven, Chapters Twenty-Three through Thirty-Four of *The City of God*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The City of God by Saint Augustine of Hippo, Book Eleven, Chapter Twenty-Three. But it is much more surprising that some, even of those who, with ourselves, believe that there is only one source of all things, and that no nature which is not divine can exist unless originated by that Creator, have yet refused to accept with a good and simple faith this so good and simple a reason of the world's creation, that a good God made it good, and that the things created, being different from God, were inferior to Him, and yet were good, being created by none other than He. But they say that souls, though not indeed parts of God, but created by Him, sinned by abandoning God, that, in proportion to their various sins, they merited different degrees of debasement from heaven to earth, and diverse bodies as prison-houses, and that this is the world, and this the cause of its creation, not the production of good things, but the restraining of evil. Origen is justly blamed for holding this opinion. For in the books which he entitles Peri Archon, that is, of origins, this is his sentiment, this his utterance. And I cannot sufficiently express my astonishment that a man so erudite and well versed in ecclesiastical literature should not have observed in the first place how opposed this is to the meaning of this authoritative scripture, which, in recounting all the works of God, regularly adds, and God saw that it was good and, when all were completed, inserts the words, And God saw everything that he had made, and, behold, it was very good. Was it not obviously meant to be understood that there was no other cause of the world's creation than that good creatures should be made by a good God? In this creation, had no one sinned, the world would have been filled and beautified with nature's good without exception. And though there is sin, all things are not therefore full of sin, for the great majority of the heavenly inhabitants preserve their nature's integrity. And the sinful will, though it violated the order of its own nature, did not on that account escape the laws of God, who justly orders all things for good. For as the beauty of a picture is increased by well-managed shadows, so, to the eye that has skill to discern it, the universe is beautified even by sinners, though, considered by themselves, their deformity is a sad blemish. In the second place, Origen, and all who think with him, ought to have seen that if it were the true opinion that the world was created in order that souls might, for their sins, be accommodated with bodies, in which they should be shut up as in houses of correction, the more venial sinners receiving lighter and more ethereal bodies, while the grosser and graver sinners received bodies more crass and grovelling, then it would follow that the devils, who are deepest in wickedness, ought, rather than even wicked men, to have earthly bodies, since these these are the grossest and least ethereal of all. But, in point of fact, that we might see that the deserts of souls are not to be estimated by the qualities of bodies, the wickedest devil possesses an ethereal body, while man, wicked, it is true, but with a wickedness small and venial in comparison with his, received even before his sin a body of clay. 
And what more foolish assertion could be advanced than that God, by this son of ours, did not design to benefit the material creation, or lend lustre to its loveliness, and therefore created one single sun for this single world, but that it so happened that one soul only had sinned so as to deserve to be enclosed in such a body as it is? On this principle, if it had chanced that not one, but two, yea, or ten, or a hundred, had sinned similarly, and with a like degree of guilt, then this world would have one hundred sons. And that such is not the case, is due not to the considerate foresight of the Creator, contriving the safety and beauty of things material, but rather to the fact that so fine a quality of sinning was hit upon by only one soul, so that it alone has merited such a body." Manifestly, persons holding such opinions should aim at confining not souls of which they know not what they say, but themselves, lest they fall, and deservedly, far indeed from the truth. And as to these three answers which I formerly recommended, when in the case of any creature the questions are put, Who made it? By what means? Why? That it should be replied, God, by the word, because it was good. As to these three answers, it is very questionable whether the Trinity itself is thus mystically indicated, that is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or whether there is some good reason for this acceptation in the, this passage of Scripture. This, I say, is questionable, and one can't be expected to explain everything in one volume. CHAPTER Twenty Four. We believe, we maintain, we faithfully preach, that the Father begat the Word, that is, wisdom, by which all things were made, the only begotten Son, one as the Father is one, eternal as the Father is eternal, and, equally with the Father, supremely good, and that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit alike of Father and of Son, and is himself consubstantial and co-eternal with both and that this whole is a trinity by reason of the individuality of the persons, and one God by reason of the indivisible divine substance, as also one Almighty by reason of the indivisible omnipotence, yet so that, when we inquire regarding each singly, it is said that each is God and Almighty, and when we speak of all together, it is said that there are not three gods, nor three Almighties, but one God Almighty. So great is the indivisible unity of these three, which requires that it be so stated. But whether the Holy Spirit of the Father and of the Son, who are both good, can be with propriety called the goodness of both, because he is common to both, I do not presume to determine hastily. Nevertheless, I would have less hesitation in saying that he is the holiness of both, not as if he were a divine attribute merely, but himself also the divine substance, and the third person in the Trinity." I am the rather emboldened to make this statement, because, though the Father is a spirit, and the Son a spirit, and the Father holy, and the Son holy, yet the third person is distinctively called the Holy Spirit, as if he were the substantial holiness consubstantial with the other two. But if the divine goodness is nothing else than the divine holiness, then certainly it is a reasonable studiousness, and not presumptuous intrusion, to inquire whether the same trinity be not hinted at in an enigmatical mode of speech, by which our inquiry is stimulated, when it is written who made each creature, and by what means, and why. For it is the father of the word who said, Let there be, and that which was made when he spoke was certainly made by means of the word. And by the words, God saw that it was good, it is sufficiently intimated that God made what was made not from any necessity, nor for the sake of supplying any want, but solely from his own goodness, that is, because it was good. 
and this is stated after the creation had taken place, that there might be no doubt that the thing made satisfied the goodness on account of which it was made. And if we are right in understanding that this goodness is the Holy Spirit, then the whole Trinity is revealed to us in the creation. In this, too, is the origin, the enlightenment, the blessedness of the holy city, which is above among the holy angels. For if we inquire whence it is, God created it, or whence its wisdom, God illumined it, or whence its blessedness, God is its bliss. It has its form by subsisting in Him, its enlightenment by contemplating Him, its joy by abiding in Him. It is, it sees, it loves. In God's eternity is its life, in God's truth its light, in God's goodness its joy. Chapter 25 as far as one can judge, it is for the same reason that philosophers had aimed at a threefold division of science, or rather were unable to see that there was a threefold division, for they did not invent, but only discovered it, of which one part is called physical, another logical, the third ethical. The Latin equivalents of these names are now naturalized in the writings of many authors, so that these divisions are called natural, rational, and moral, on which I have touched slightly in the eighth book. Not that I would conclude that these philosophers, in this threefold division, had any thought of a trinity in God, although Plato is said to have been the first to discover and promulgate this distribution, and he saw that God alone could be the author of nature, the bestower of intelligence, and the kindler of love, by which life becomes good and blessed. But certain it is, that though philosophers disagree both regarding the nature of things, and the mode of investigating truth, and of the good to which all our actions ought to tend, yet in these three great general questions all their intellectual energy is spent. And though there be a confusing diversity of opinion, every man striving to establish his own opinion in regard to each of these questions, yet no one of them all doubts that nature has some cause, science some method, life some end and aim. Then again there are three things which every artificer must possess if he is to effect anything, nature, education, practice. Nature is to be judged by capacity, education by knowledge, practice by its fruit. I am aware that, properly speaking, fruit is what one enjoys, use, practice, what one uses. And this seems to be the difference between them, that we are said to enjoy that which in itself, and irrespective of other ends, delights us, to use that which we seek for the sake of some end beyond. For which reason the things of time are to be used rather than enjoyed, that we may deserve to enjoy things eternal, and not as those perverse creatures who would fain enjoy money and use God, not spending money for God's sake, but worshipping God for money's sake. However, in common parlance, we both use fruits and enjoy uses. For we correctly speak of the fruits of the field which certainly we all use in the present life. And it was in accordance with this usage that I said that there were three things to be observed in a man, nature, education, practice. From these the philosophers have elaborated, as I said, the threefold division of that science by which a blessed life is attained, the natural having respect to nature, the rational to education, the moral to practice. If, then, we were ourselves the authors of our nature, we should have generated knowledge in ourselves, and should not require to reach it by education, that is, by learning it from others. Our love, too, proceeding from ourselves and returning to us, would suffice to make our life blessed, and would stand in need of no extraneous enjoyment. 
But now, since our nature has God as its requisite author, it is certain that we must have him for our teacher, that we may be wise, him too to dispense to us spiritual sweetness, that we may be blessed. Chapter 26 and we indeed recognize in ourselves the image of God, that is, of the supreme trinity, an image which, though it be not equal to God, or rather, though it be very far removed from him, being neither co-eternal, nor, to say all in a word, consubstantial with him, is yet nearer to him in nature than any other of his works, and is destined to be yet restored, that it may bear a still closer resemblance. For we both are, and know that we are, and delight in our being, and our knowledge of it. Moreover, in these three things no true-seeming illusion disturbs us, for we do not come into contact with these by some bodily sense, as we perceive the things outside of us. Colors, for example, by seeing, sounds by hearing, smells by smelling, tastes by tasting, hard and soft objects by touching. Of all which sensible objects it is the images resembling them, but not themselves, which we perceive in the mind and hold in the memory, and which excite us to desire the objects. But without any delusive representation of images or phantasms, I am most certain that I am, and that I know and delight in this. In respect of these truths, I am not at all afraid of the arguments of the academicians, who say, What if you are deceived? For if I am deceived, I am. He who is not cannot be deceived, and if I am deceived, by the same token, I am. And since I am, if I am deceived, how am I deceived in believing that I am? for it is certain that I am if I am deceived. Since therefore I, the person deceived, should be, even if I were deceived, certainly I am not deceived in this knowledge that I am, and consequently neither am I deceived in knowing that I know. For as I know that I am, so I know this also, that I know. And when I love these two things, I add to them a certain third thing, namely my love, which is of equal moment. For neither am I deceived in this, that I love, since in those things which I love I am not deceived. Though even if these were false, it would still be true that I loved false things. For how could I justly be blamed and prohibited from loving false things, if it were false that I loved them? But, since they are true and real, who doubts that when they are loved, the love of them is itself true and real? Further, as there is no one who does not wish to be happy, so there is no one who does not wish to be. For how can he be happy if he is nothing? CHAPTER Twenty Seven. And truly the very fact of existing is by some natural spell so pleasant that even the wretched are, for no other reason, unwilling to perish. And when they feel that they are wretched, wish not that they themselves be annihilated, but that their misery be so. Take even those who, both in their own esteem and in point of fact, are utterly wretched, and who are reckoned so not only by wise men on account of their folly, but by those who count themselves blessed, and who think them wretched because they are poor and destitute. If any one should give these men an immortality, in which their misery should be deathless, and should offer the alternative, that if they shrank from existing eternally, in the same misery they might be annihilated, and exist nowhere at all, nor in any condition, on the instant they would joyfully nay exultantly make election to exist always, even in such a condition, rather than not exist at all. The well-known feeling of such men witnesses to this. For when we see that they fear to die, and will rather live in such misfortune than end it by death, is it not obvious enough how nature shrinks from annihilation? 
and accordingly, when they know that they must die, they seek, as a great boon, that this mercy be shown them, that they may a little longer live in the same misery, and delay to end it by death. And so they indubitably prove with what glad alacrity they would accept immortality, even though it secured to them endless destruction. What? Do not even all irrational animals, to whom such calculations are unknown, from the huge dragons down to the least worms, all testify that they wish to exist, and therefore shun death by every movement in their power? Nay, the very plants and shrubs which have no such life as enables them to shun destruction by movements we can see, do not they all seek in their own fashion to conserve their existence by rooting themselves more and more deeply in the earth, so that they may draw nourishment and throw out healthy branches towards the sky? In fine, even the lifeless bodies, which want not only sensation but seminal life, yet either seek the upper air, or sink deep, or are balanced in an intermediate position, so that they may protect their existence in that situation where they can exist in most accordance with their nature. And how much human nature loves the knowledge of its existence, and how it shrinks from being deceived, will be sufficiently understood from this fact, that every man prefers to grieve in a sane mind, rather than to be glad in madness. And this grand and wonderful instinct belongs to men alone of all animals, for though some of them have keener eyesight than ourselves for this world's light, they cannot attain to that spiritual light with which our mind is somehow irradiated, so that we can form right judgments of all things. For our power to judge is proportioned to our acceptance of this light. Nevertheless, the irrational animals, though they have not knowledge, have certainly something resembling knowledge, whereas the other material things are said to be sensible, not because they have senses, but because they are the objects of our senses. Yet among plants their nourishment and generation have some resemblance to sensible life. However, both these and all material things have their causes hidden in their nature. But their outward forms, which lend beauty to this visible structure of the world, are perceived by our senses, so that they seem to wish to compensate for their own want of knowledge by providing us with knowledge. But we perceive them by our bodily senses in such a way that we do not judge of them by these senses. For we have another and far superior sense, belonging to the inner man, by which we perceive what things are just and what unjust, just by means of an intelligible idea, unjust by the want of it. This sense is aided in its functions neither by the eyesight, nor by the orifice of the ear, nor by the air-holes of the nostrils, nor by the palate's taste, nor by any bodily touch. By it I am assured both that I am, and that I know this, and these two I love, and in the same manner I am assured that I love them. CHAPTER Twenty Eight. We have said as much as the scope of this work demands regarding these two things, to wit, our existence and our knowledge of it, and how much they are loved by us, and how there is found even in the lower creatures a kind of likeness of these things, and yet with a difference. We have yet to speak of the love wherewith they are loved, to determine whether this love itself is loved. And doubtless it is, and this is the proof. Because in men who are justly loved, it is rather love itself that is loved. For he is not justly called a good man who knows what is good, but who loves it. Is it not then obvious that we love in ourselves the very love wherewith we love whatever good we love? For there is also a love wherewith we love that which we ought not to love, and this love is hated by him who loves that wherewith he loves what ought to be loved. 
for it is quite possible for both to exist in one man. And this coexistence is good for a man, to the end that this love which conduces to our living well may grow, and the other which leads us to evil may decrease, until our whole life be perfectly healed and transmuted into good. For if we were beasts, we should love the fleshly and sensual life, and this would be our sufficient good. And when it was well with us in respect of it, we should seek nothing beyond. In like manner, if we were trees, we could not, indeed, in the strict sense of the word, love anything. Nevertheless, we should seem, as it were, to long for that by which we might become more abundantly and luxuriantly fruitful. If we were stones, or waves, or wind, or flame, or anything of that kind, we should want indeed both sensation and life, yet should possess a kind of attraction towards our own proper position and natural order. For the specific gravity of bodies is, as it were, their love, whether they are carried downwards by their weight, or upwards by their levity. For the body is born by its gravity, as the spirit by love, whithersoever it is born. But we are men, created in the image of our Creator, whose eternity is true, and whose truth is eternal, whose love is eternal and true, and who himself is the eternal, true, and adorable Trinity, without confusion, without separation. And therefore, while, as we run over all the works which he has established, we may detect, as it were, his footprints, now more and now less distinct, even in those things that are beneath us, since they could not so much as exist, or be bodied forth in any shape, or follow and observe any law, had they not been made by him who supremely is, and is supremely good, and supremely wise. Yet in ourselves, beholding his image, let us, like that younger son of the gospel, come to ourselves, and arise, and return to him, from whom by our sin we had departed. There our being will have no death, our knowledge no error, our love no mishap. But now, though we are assured of our possession of these three things, not on the testimony of others, but by our own consciousness of their presence, and because we see them with our own most truthful interior vision, yet, as we cannot of ourselves know how long they are to continue, and whether they shall never cease to be, and what issue their good or bad use will lead to, we seek for others who can acquaint us of these things, if we have not already found them. Of the trustworthiness of these witnesses there will, not now, but subsequently, be an opportunity of speaking. But in this book let us go on as we have begun, with God's help to speak of the city of God, not in its state of pilgrimage and mortality, but as it exists ever immortal in the heavens. That is, let us speak of the holy angels who maintain their allegiance to God, who never were, nor ever shall be, apostate, between whom and those who forsook light eternal and became darkness, God, as we have already said, made at the first a separation. Chapter 29 those holy angels come to the knowledge of God not by audible words, but by the presence to their souls of immutable truth, that is, of the only begotten word of God. And they know this word himself, and the Father, and their Holy Spirit, and that this trinity is indivisible, and that the three persons of it are one substance, and that there are not three gods, but one God. And this they so know that it is better understood by them than we are by ourselves. Thus, too, they know the creature also, not in itself, but by this better way, in the wisdom of God, as if in the art by which it was created. And, consequently, they know themselves better in God than in themselves, though they have also this latter knowledge. For they were created, and are different from their Creator. 
In him, therefore, they have, as it were, a noonday knowledge, in themselves a twilight knowledge, according to our former explanations. For there is a great difference between knowing a thing in the design and conformity to which it was made, and knowing it in itself. For example, the straightness of lines and correctness of figures is known in one way when mentally conceived, in another when described on paper. And justice is known in one way in the unchangeable truth, in another in the spirit of a just man. So is it with all other things, as the firmament between the water above and below, which was called the heaven, the gathering of the waters beneath, and the laying bare of the dry land, and the production of plants and trees, the creation of sun, moon, and stars, and of the animals out of the waters, fowls and fish, and monsters of the deep, and of everything that walks or creeps on the earth, and of man himself who excels all that is on the earth. All these things are known in one way by the angels in the word of God, in which they see the eternally abiding causes and reasons according to which they were made, and in another way in themselves, in the former with a clearer knowledge, in the latter with a knowledge dimmer, and rather of the bare works than of the design. Yet when these works are referred to the praise and adoration of the Creator himself, it is as if morning dawned in the minds of those who contemplate them. CHAPTER Thirty. These works are recorded to have been completed in six days, the same day being six times repeated, because six is a perfect number, not because God required a protracted time, as if he could not at once create all things, which then should mark the course of time by the movements proper to them, but because the perfection of the works was signified by the number six. For the number six is the first which is made up of its own parts, that is, of its sixth, third, and half, which are respectively one, two, and three, and which make a total of six. In this way of looking at a number, those are said to be its parts which exactly divide it, as a half, a third, a fourth, or a fraction with any denominator. For example, four is a part of nine, but not therefore an aliquot part, but one is, for it is the ninth part, and three is, for it is the third. Yet these two parts, the ninth and the third, or one and three, are far from making its whole sum of nine. So again, in the number ten, four is a part, yet does not divide it, but one is an aliquot part, for it is a tenth. So it has a fifth, which is two, and a half, which is five. But these three parts, a tenth, a fifth, and a half, or one, two, and five, added together, do not make ten, but eight. Of the number twelve, again, the parts added together exceed the whole, for it has a twelfth, that is, one, a sixth, or two, a fourth, which is three, a third, which is four, and a half, which is six. But one, two, three, four, and six make up not twelve, but more. Sixteen. So much I have thought fit to state for the sake of illustrating the perfection of the number six, which is, as I said, the first which is exactly made up of its own parts added together. And in this number of days God finished his work. And, therefore, we must not despise the science of numbers, which, in many passages of Holy Scripture, is found to be of eminent service to the careful interpreter. Neither has it been without reason numbered among God's praises. Thou hast ordered all things in number and measure and wait. Chapter 31 But on the seventh day, that is, the same day repeated seven times, which number is also a perfect one, though for another reason, the rest of God is set forth, and then too we first hear of its being hallowed. 
so that God did not wish to hallow this day by his works, but by his rest, which has no evening, for it is not a creature. So that, being known in one way in the word of God, and in another in itself, it should make a twofold knowledge, daylight and dusk, day and evening. Much more might be said about the perfection of the number seven, but this book is already too long, and I fear lest I should seem to catch at an opportunity of airing my little smattering of science more childishly than profitably. I must speak, therefore, in moderation and with dignity, lest in too keenly following number I be accused of forgetting weight and measure. Suffice it here to say that three is the first whole number that is odd, four the first that is even, and of these two seven is composed. On this account it is often put for all numbers together, as, A just man falleth seven times, and riseth up again. That is, let him fall never so often, he will not perish. And this was meant to be understood not of sins, but of afflictions conducing to lowliness. Again, seven times a day will I praise thee, which elsewhere is expressed thus, I will bless the Lord at all times. And many such instances are found in the divine authorities, in which the number seven is, as I said, commonly used to express the whole, or the completeness of anything. And so the Holy Spirit, of whom the Lord says, He will teach you all truth, is signified by this number. In it is the rest of God, the rest his people find in him. For rest is in the whole, that is, in perfect completeness, while in the part there is labor. And thus we labor as long as we know in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. It is even with toil we search into the scriptures themselves. But the holy angels, towards whose society and assembly we sigh while in this our toilsome pilgrimage, as they already abide in their eternal home, so do they enjoy a perfect felicity of knowledge and felicity of rest. It is without difficulty that they help us, for their spiritual movements, pure and free, cost them no effort. CHAPTER Thirty Two. But if some one oppose our opinion, and say that the holy angels are not referred to, when it is said, Let there be light, and there was light, if he suppose or teach that some material light, then first created, was meant, and that the angels were created not only before the firmament dividing the waters, and named the heaven, but also before the time signified in the words, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, if he allege that this phrase, in the beginning, does not mean that nothing was made before, for the angels were, but that God made all things by his wisdom, or word, who is named in Scripture, the beginning, as he himself in the gospel replied to the Jews, when they asked him who he was, that he was the beginning, I will not contest the point, chiefly because it gives me the liveliest satisfaction to find the Trinity celebrated in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. For having said, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, meaning that the Father made them in the Son, as the psalm testifies, where it says, How manifold are thy works, O Lord! In wisdom hast thou made them all. A little afterwards mention is fitly made of the Holy Spirit also. For when it had been told us what kind of earth God created at first, or what the mass of matter was which God, under the name of heaven and earth, had provided for the construction of the world, as is told in the additional words, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, then, for the sake of completing the mention of the Trinity, it is immediately added, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. 
Let each one, then, take it as he pleases, for it is so profound a passage that it may well suggest, for the exercise of the reader's tact, many opinions, and none of them widely departing from the rule of faith. At the same time, let none doubt that the holy angels and their heavenly abodes are, though not indeed co-eternal with God, yet secure and certain of eternal and true felicity. To their company the Lord teaches that his little ones belong, and not only says, They shall be equal to the angels of God, but shows, too, what blessed contemplation the angels themselves enjoy, saying, Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. Chapter 33 That certain angels sinned, and were thrust down to the lowest parts of this world, where they are, as it were, incarcerated, till their final damnation and the day of judgment, the apostle Peter very plainly declares, when he says that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment. Who then can doubt that God, either in foreknowledge or in act, separated between these and the rest? And who will dispute that the rest are justly called light? For even we, who are yet living by faith, hoping only, and not yet enjoying equality with them, are already called light by the apostle. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. But as for these apostate angels, all who understand or believe them to be worse than unbelieving men, are well aware that they are called darkness. Wherefore, though light and darkness are to be taken in their literal signification in these passages of Genesis, in which it is said, God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God divided the light from the darkness. Yet for our part we understand these two societies of angels, the one enjoying God, the other swelling with pride, the one to whom it is said, Praise ye him, all his angels, the other whose prince says, all these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The one blazing with the holy love of God, the other reeking with the unclean lust of self-advancement. And since, as it is written, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble, we may say, the one dwelling in the heaven of heavens, the other cast thence, and raging through the lower regions of the air the one tranquil in the brightness of piety, the other tempest-tossed with beclouding desires, the one at God's pleasure tenderly succoring, justly avenging, the other set on by its own pride, boiling with the lust of subduing and hurting, the one the minister of God's goodness to the utmost of their good pleasure, the other held in by God's power from doing the harm it would the former laughing at the latter when it does good unwillingly by its persecutions, the latter envying the former when it gathers in its pilgrims. These two angelic communities, then, dissimilar and contrary to one another, the one both by nature good and by will upright, the other also good by nature but by will depraved, as they are exhibited in other and more explicit passages of holy writ, so I think they are spoken of in this book of Genesis under the names of light and darkness. And even if the author perhaps had a different meaning, yet our discussion of the obscure language has not been wasted time. For though we have been unable to discover his meaning, yet we have adhered to the rule of faith, which is sufficiently ascertained by the faithful from other passages of equal authority. For, though it is the material works of God which are here spoken of, they have certainly a resemblance to the spiritual, so that Paul can say, Ye are all the children of light, and the children of the day. 
we are not of the night, nor of darkness. If, on the other hand, the author of Genesis saw in the words what we see, then our discussion reaches this more satisfactory conclusion, that the man of God, so eminently and divinely wise, or rather that the Spirit of God, who by him recorded God's works, which were finished on the sixth day, may be supposed not to have omitted all mention of the angels, whether he included them in the words, in the beginning, because he made them first, or, which seems most likely, because he made them in the only begotten word." and under these names heaven and earth the whole creation is signified either is divided into spiritual and material which seems the more likely or into the two great parts of the world in which all created things are contained so that first of all the creation is presented in some and then its parts are enumerated according to the mystic number of the days chapter thirty four some, however, have supposed that the angelic hosts are somehow referred to under the name of waters, and that this is what is meant by, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, that the waters above should be understood of the angels, and those below either of the visible waters, or of the multitude of bad angels, or of the nations of men. If this be so, then it does not here appear when the angels were created, but when they were separated. Though there have not been wanting men foolish and wicked enough to deny that the waters were made by God, because it is nowhere written, God said, Let there be waters. With equal folly they might say the same of the earth, for nowhere do we read, God said, Let the earth be. But, say they, it is written, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Yes, and there the water is meant, for both are included in one word. For the sea is his, as the psalm says, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. But those who would understand the angels by the waters above the skies have a difficulty about the specific gravity of the elements, and fear that the waters, owing to their fluidity and weight, could not be set in the upper parts of the world. So that, if they were to construct a man upon their own principles, they would not put in his head any moist humours, or phlegm, as the Greeks call it, and which acts the part of water among the elements of our body. But in God's handiwork the head is the seat of the phlegm, and truly most fitly, and yet, according to their supposition, so absurdly that if we were not aware of the fact, and were informed by this same record that God had put a moist and cold and therefore heavy humour in the uppermost part of man's body, these world-wares would refuse belief. And if they were confronted with the authority of Scripture, they would maintain that something else must be meant by the words. But were we to investigate and discover all the details which are written in this divine book regarding the creation of the world, we should have much to say, and should widely digress from the proposed aim of this work. Since then we have now said what seemed needful regarding these two diverse and contrary communities of angels, in which the origin of the two human communities, of which we intend to speak anon, is also found, let us at once bring this book also to a conclusion. End of Book 11, Chapters 23 through 34. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, www.logoslibrary.org.